Amen. Well, this morning, if you have your bullets, and I want you to take that bulletin out, and I want you to take those notes. Today is very significant as we walk through this message, because some of the things you're going to hear today are really important. I want to talk to you today about connecting the dots in the book of Romans. We're going to step back a little bit. We're going to stay in the book of Romans, but I want to step back a little bit. We've covered five chapters, and there's some really significant things that I think we're going to miss unless we pause for a moment and connect the dots of what Paul is saying in the book of Romans. I read this last week about a father who deeply loved his son. Often when he got off work, he would spend time playing with his son. But this one day in particular, as he was leaving the office, he knew he had extra work to do when he got home. He was not going to be able to spend time with his son like he'd hoped. He saw a picture of a large map of the world, and he had an idea. He took that map, and he began to carefully tear it into small pieces. Then he grabbed a, a roll of scotch tape. When he got home... He explained to his son that dad has work to do today and he can't spend time with you like I normally do, but I've got a project for you, son. So he took him into the dining room and on the table he scattered all those pieces. He said, son, this is a map of the world. What I want you to do is I want you to put this map together. And by the time you get done, why, dad will probably be done as well and we can spend time together. Dad was thinking, surely this will keep him busy for a long time. Dad went to work, and the son went to work on the puzzle. Within a half an hour, the son proudly announced with the map, he said, I've put it together, Dad. I'm done. And the father couldn't believe it. He said, well, that's amazing. How'd you do that? The son said, well, simple, Dad. On the back of the picture was a man. And when I put the man together, the whole world came together. <laughs> Great story. Well, right now, if you've been following in our study of Romans, you know that the reoccurring theme of the book of Romans is justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That we are made right with God through our faith in Christ alone. Paul says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And over the last five chapters of the book of Romans, you've heard me say that in one way or another. Again and again, we're justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. In fact, the word justified right there is a word that Paul uses some 14 times in the entire book of Romans. It's interesting that he uses it 11 times in just the first five chapters. So, it's not too much to say that this word, justification, it's a very significant word in the mind of Paul. He understands the significance of it, and he keeps using it again and again and again and talking about its significance in our relationship with God through the first five chapters of Romans. But it's not the only important word he uses. He uses a host of others as well. In fact, we've read through them. You may not remember them, but they're words that Paul uses. Glorification, imputation, reconciliation, propitiation, adoption, sanctification. Yeah, I don't remember him saying those words. Well, he used them. And they're very significant words as we begin to unpack what our salvation really is. You see, for a lot of us, our lives are like a puzzle of the world. And we look at our salvation, it doesn't make a lot of sense. We're trying to put it all together. And yet, when we put the book of Romans together, suddenly we begin to understand this incredible miracle 
of a new life, a salvation through Jesus Christ. Imagine with me for a moment, if you will, that instead of that map representing the world, imagine with me that it represents all the books of the Bible. The Bible is not one book, you know. It is actually 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, 66 books. It is a library of books that was written in three different languages, three different continents, over 1,600 years, over 40 different authors. It is a library of books. And let's face it, it's a difficult book to understand. So let's just imagine, for the sake of illustration, on the other side of that picture is not the book of the Bible, but instead just one book. Just the book of Romans. And it's composed of pieces like justification, imputation, propitiation, glorification, sanctification, reconciliation, adoption. And when you start putting these pieces together and you start understanding the book of Romans, you begin to understand something very significant. That there's one theme throughout the entirety of all 66 books of the Bible, and that is God's magnificent plan of salvation for mankind. And when you put the book of Romans together, that plan suddenly comes to illumination. It comes to light in a way like you've never seen before. You see, the reason that Paul uses these words, justification, sanctification, propitiation, imputation, propitiation, or reconciliation, is because these words are the puzzle pieces when you put them together they help us understand the miracle of salvation that God wants to bring into our lives of that relationship with him. When you begin to understand these words, you begin to understand what Jesus meant when he said the Son of Man came that we have, may have life and have it abundantly. Or that if the Son of Man shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. You see, I suspect that a lot of believers believe but they don't really understand their salvation. They're not excited about it because they don't understand how these pieces fit together. And so what I want to do today is I want to just take a moment and look at some significant words, just one today, justification, a word that Paul uses a lot. And I want to unpack or connect the dots, if you will, of how Paul is explaining this word in relationship to our salvation throughout the book of Romans. And over the course of the next several Sundays, I want to take a number of these key words and bring them out from the book of Romans and connect the dots to show us this incredible miracle of salvation that God has brought about in our lives. So today, we just want to look at one word, justification. Paul uses it a number of times throughout these chapters. And we're indebted, if you will, to Dr. Warren Wearsby, the late Warren Wearsby, who gave us, if you will, a guideline, a kind of a map to walk through in putting this significant word to understanding. So ultimately, justification answers this one question. How can I know I'm right with God? How can I know that when I die, and I stand before God, that I'm not going to be condemned or punished for my sins, but instead I have a confident hope that I know that I'm accepted, I'm loved, I'm forgiven, by God. How can I know I'm right with God? Well, let's begin with a, a definition. This is just a, a brief definition. The gracious act of God, whereby he declares a believing sinner to be right with him. The gracious act of God, whereby God declares the believing sinner to be right with him. 
That's what Paul's been saying throughout the five chapters of Romans. Now, let's understand what it means and how it works. Let's connect the dots of Romans. So justification. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me look at five marks, if you will, of justification that Paul has been talking about throughout this book. First of all, justification is instantaneous. In other words, the moment you believed, the moment in your heart, you said, I'm going to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. At that very moment, you were justified. You were made right with God. In other words, justification is not a process. It is an act. It is instantaneous. The moment you believed, you were justified. Paul says it this way in Ephesians. He says, after listening to the message of the truth of the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, listen to what he says, after listening, having also believed, what happens next? He says, you are sealed with him that is with the Holy Spirit of promise. So what happened to the Ephesian believers the moment they believed? They were sealed with the seal of acceptance, approval, and ownership of God himself through the Holy Spirit. The moment they believed, they were made right with God. It is instantaneous. Second, it is final. In other words, it is permanent, it is eternal, it will never change. Once God declares that you're right with him, the question of your sins are settled past, present, and future. In other words, you never have to worry about standing before God saying, God, am I going to be condemned for my sins? God says, no, because of the shed blood of my son on the cross. You no longer need to worry about your sins. They're forgiven because you've been made right with me. Imagine, if you will, this way. Imagine two ledgers. On one ledger are all your sins, past, present, and future. All the sins that you'll ever commit. On the other ledger is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what the Bible says is the moment you trusted Christ, those ledgers were switched. You were given Christ's righteousness, and your sin, past, present, and future, was put on Christ. On the cross. Paul says, He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless. See the switching of the ledgers? Holy and blameless beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. What Paul is saying is that it is by our faith that we're justified by God. It is by our faith we continue to walk in that relationship knowing that we're justified. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that there's a temptation that every one of us are going to have, and that is we want to substitute our faith for performance. Many of us believe I came to God through grace. I came to salvation through faith in him, but now it's up to me to maintain it. It's up to me to work it out and maintain God's approval. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the moment we come to Christ, our faith... By our faith, we're accepted in Christ, and it maintains by our faith, not by our performance. You see, the difference between justification and salvation is this, is that salvation, God gives you a new life. But in justification, he gives you a new standing before him. It is permanent. It is eternal. It never changes. 
Justification is not forgiveness. If it, were, if it were forgiveness, that means the moment you sinned again, you'd have to be justified all over again. It is not forgiveness. It is a new standing that is permanent and eternal, forgiven forever in Christ. And nor is justification a pardon. Sometimes we think, God, you haven't forgotten all the things I've done. I'm a criminal before you, and you haven't forgotten my criminal record. You see, the difference between a pardon and justification is this. When a criminal is pardoned, guess what? They're still a criminal. But the moment you come to Christ and you're justified, those sins are erased, they're forgotten, they never exist again. They're permanently and eternally forgiven, past, present, and future. I read about a preacher one time who was preaching before the people, and he said, you know, he said, one day you're going to die. And you're going to stand before God and he's going to take all of your sins and he's going to put them on a large screen for everyone to see. Folks, that is not what the Bible teaches. God says, in fact, something very different. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17, he says, There's sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. That's what Christ dying on the cross and our trusting him as our Savior means that God forgives and forgets our sins. Now, here's a problem. But you say, God is omniscient. He knows all things. That means he doesn't forget anything. God knows everything. He has an iron trap memory. He knows it all. So how can you say that God says that he's going to forget my sins? My sins and lawless deeds, I'll remember no more. How could he say that he was omniscient? He's saying this, that I now treat you, even though I know those things, I choose to treat you as though I forget all those things. And by the way, I forget those things permanently and eternally. I'll never change toward you. So God's justification is instant. It is final. It is also a gift. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 24, Romans in 4, verse 5, he says, being justified as a gift by his grace to the one who does not work, but the one who believes in him is justified. He justifies the ungodly. Has, his faith is credited as righteousness. You see, what God is doing is he gives us a gift of justification by his grace. In other words, without cause, you could not have earned it. You cannot maintain it. You'll never be good enough to earn it. It is purely a gift without cause. God chooses to justify, chooses to forgive you by his amazing grace. And he does that, he says, for the ungodly. Do you know how many times I've heard people say, you know, there's no way God could forgive me. The things I've done in my life, I know my heart and I know my past and I don't think God could ever forgive me. You know something interesting about Scripture? It says that God forgives the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. Why is it God justifies the ungodly? Do you know why? Because there are no godly. That's why. There's only sinners. And no matter how great or how horrible or, or how tremendous your sin may be, God says, that's why I sent my son to die on the cross for your sins. So it is a gift. Let me put it to you this way. One of the benefits of this gift, one of the ways this gift works in our lives is that justification is God's answer to our feeling inadequate, our feeling as though we'll never measure up, 
are feeling as though we are a failure and there will never be anything different, God's answer is justification. See, justification means that I have God's full acceptance. It means that I have God's full love. And if that's true, guess what that means? If it's permanent, it's eternal, it's not based on me, it's based on God's act of grace, guess what that means? It means now that I am secure in my self-worth. How many of you wrestle with insecurity? Just a couple of you. We all wrestle with insecurity in relationships, in life, even with God. And justification means we don't have to live in insecurity anymore. That the freedom of God's grace, he just says, I want you to be totally secure because I totally accept you and love you as you are. And I forgive you of your sins. It is a gift. Fourth, it is by faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So let me ask you, what is faith? Faith is simply this. It is taking God at his word. So in other words, if God says that he forgives me and makes me right with him, then that means, faith means, that I need to believe God that his word is completely true. So to be justified simply means this. It means putting my faith in Christ and taking God at his word. You see, it's not faith that saves you. Sometimes you hear somebody say, you know, if I just have enough faith, God will save me. It's not faith that saves you. You know that? Faith doesn't save you. It's the object you place your faith in that saves you. And your faith is only as good as the object you place it in. So there are a lot of people who are very sincere that have a lot of faith. But guess what? They're sincerely wrong. Because unless your faith is in Christ... Your faith will never bring salvation. Our faith is only as good as the object we place it in. I don't know how many people I've met along the way who will say, you know, I believe in God as though that's what God is looking for, just this kind of a, you know, kind of like a tipping of the head. Yep, I believe in God. Yeah, there's a big man upstairs. I believe in him. Uh, That is not salvation. Merely giving intellectual assent to the fact that God is, is not salvation. Justification means this. It comes from the heart uh, that trusts Christ as your personal Savior. That's what justification means. James says this in James chapter 2, verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. In other words, he's saying, you believe that God is? <laughs> he says, great, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Just to say that you believe in God and give intellectual assent makes you no different than the demons. Justification comes from a heart that trusts Christ as your Savior and takes God at his word. So it is instant. It is final. It is a gift. It is by faith. And it is also a new life. Paul says in Romans 5.18, So then, as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men, Even so, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted in justification of life to all men. Now, here's what Paul is saying. We've said over and over again that that justification is a legal declaration, meaning that God now legally declares you are right with him. Your past, your criminal past of all your sins are forgiven. And now you have a new standing before him, a legal right in which you are accepted by God. 
But you see, the one who God declares righteous is also the person who's going to become righteous. God doesn't merely declare you righteous and leave you there, but now he's going to work that righteousness out in your life. And that's what Paul is saying here, as he says that now this righteousness, this faith in Christ, will result in justification of life, a brand new life. That's what he's saying. I love reading the stories about great Christians who have gone before us. I've been working my way through a book called Lion of God by John G. Mitchell. Actually, it's his biography. And Dr. Mitchell was born in Scotland. He came to America. He was a machinist. He smoked stogies. And then he came to Christ. And his life radically transformed. And before he knew it, he was traveling all over the place teaching God's word. On this one occasion in the early 1920s, he was invited to a place called Cleveland Rapids in southern Oregon. A little schoolhouse. It was packed full of people. And he began to teach God's word. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and nobody came to Christ. Finally, in the last day, as he was teaching, a big man stood up named John Jakeman. He had rubber boots on. He was a farmer, and he walked up to the platform. He was so tall, in fact, as John Mitchell stood at the platform, John Jakeman was eye to eye with him. And Dr. Mitchell said, what is it you want? And Jakeman said, I want God. And right then and there, John Jakeman gave his life to Christ. Well, news soon spread around the entire community that John Jakeman had come to Christ. It just so happened that Jakeman was the ringleader of a large group of men who were running a bootlegging operation. This was during Prohibition. And so they were making and selling alcohol. When John Jakeman went home, he found that his telephone wires had been cut. There were two men that were patrolling his property with armed with rifles. They followed him day in and day out. Whatever he did, they were watching everything he did. Finally, on a Friday morning, they came to him. And they asked him what he was going to do. And he said, do about what? They said, well, you know, what we've been, what we've been in. What are you going to do about that? Are you going to call the sheriff? And John Jakeman said, so why, why would I call the sheriff? Well, you know what we've been in, they said. Oh, John said, you're talking about the old John. He's gone. This is the new John. He left his past life forever. When we come to Christ, we're a brand new creation. We are a new child of God, and we give, we're given a new life. John says it this way in 1 John 3, 9. He says, those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning. Why? Because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. Listen, if you've come to Christ and you've trusted him as your Lord and Savior, you're going to begin to see life change inside of you from the inside out. What is that? It's God in you, working in you, working out that righteousness that he's declared to be true of you already. Don't be surprised, but if there are no changes in your life, then I'd go back and I'd re-examine, did I really trust Christ or not? Because I guarantee you, the life that sincerely trusts Christ will change. And if there is no life change in you, then you need to seriously ask yourself this question, have I truly trusted Christ or have I merely given intellectual assent that he is?
There are a lot of people who live their life with a false security, thinking just because I said that prayer, I said those magical words, I'm good to go with God, now I can live like hell. And let me tell you something, when you come to Christ, you begin to change on the inside out because God gets a hold of your life and he begins to change. You have new desires, a whole new outlook on life. That's the evidence of God working in you. Why? Because you're a new creation, you're a new person, you're a child of God. Why do I say that? You hear me say that often, but why do I say that? Because I want you to examine your faith. I want you to know that you know that you're saved. I want you to know that you've given your life to Christ and you understand what that means. It's a new life. You've been justified by Christ. So what does justification mean? Well, it's instant. It is final. It is a gift. It is by faith. And it is a brand new life. Now, how does this work? How does it work in our lives? The three areas I want to look at very briefly here. One is it changes our relationship with God. It changes our response to troubles and tribulations we have in life. And it changes our relationship with one another. So it changes our relationship with God. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he says, We have peace with God. Now, we, when you have, we now have peace with God. I don't think there are, any, there are any five words that contain greater relief than those words. We have peace with God. I think they're more powerful, in fact, than a physician who says to his patient, you're now cured. I think they're more powerful, in fact, than a, a, par, a criminal who's been pardoned from death row. To have God's peace means that now as I look to my future, as I look to my eternity, I no longer have to worry about God's wrath, God's condemnation. I have peace with God because I'm accepted in Christ. This past week, I was busy throughout the day and I happened to run across a person that I knew was dreading an upcoming surgery. I knew she was weighed down with a heavy sense of fear and I knew why. She was afraid of dying. I asked her if I could pray with her and she said, of course. As I prayed with her, she said, oh, I feel so much better. But that lasted about that long. And then she began to chew again on what she was worrying about. She was worried that her home was not going to be in order. If something should happen to her, her home needed to be in order. That was important to her. And then I said to her, well, chances are something's not going to happen to you. But I said, if something did, do you know where you're going? With a startled look in her face, she said, no. I said, would you like to know? And she said, yes. And so I began to share the gospel with her. And I, as I shared about how Christ died on the cross for our sins, he was buried and the third day rose again. He gave us new life and forgiveness by our faith in him. As I shared those words, doubt began to creep in. And she began to worry all over again and fear began to take over. She wanted to believe, but she was filled with doubt. She was filled with fear. And so I said to her, you know, it's okay if you have doubts. It's okay if you have fear. That's normal. What God is looking for is not our fear, not our doubts. He's looking for faith. And even the faith the size of a mustard seed, though it be small, God is looking for. 
God understands your doubts. He understands your concerns. He understands your fears. But what he's really looking for is that faith that will take him at his word. And so I said, you know, look at it this way. If the gospel is not true, you have lost nothing, right? Right. But I said, if it is true, you've just lost everything. And she looked at me with surprise in her eyes, and she said, I've never thought of it that way. I said, do you want to trust Christ with that little bit of faith you have? And she said, yes. And right there, I prayed with her, and no sooner did we finish praying than she said, oh, I feel so much better. And for the first time, I saw that she was not only had peace with God, but she was beginning to experience the peace of God in her life. We now have peace with God in this relationship with God. And second, he says in verse 2 of Romans chapter 5, he says, now we have access to God. He says, we obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. That word introduction carries the idea that we now have access, but it's a certain kind of access that he's talking about. It's the access that you have before a very important person or a king to be invited into a prestigious court of a king and to come with confidence that you have been invited by the king. And Paul is saying this is the kind of access that we have before God, the highest authority of all, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. But this word carries even more meaning than simply confident access. It means as well that we have unlimited and permanent access before him. It is one that will always be greeted by full acceptance and welcome. Now I want you to imagine this for a moment. What God is saying through justification is that not only do you have peace with him, but you have permanent, unlimited, unbroken access to him. That every time you pray, God hears you. Do you ever feel like you pray and your, your prayers seem to bounce off the ceiling? You think, oh, God's not listening to me. Maybe you feel a little bit like Elizabeth did. As the well was dry, you wonder, did God even hear? Does he even know? But God did, and God does, and God answered. You see, God loves you with the love of a son. And it's hard for us to comprehend that, isn't it? But imagine this for a moment. Just imagine if Jesus were sitting next to you. And someone were to ask God and say, uh, God, which one do you love the most? Which one's the most holy? Which one's the most blameless? Which one's the most righteous? Do you know what God would say? This is justification. God would say, I love them both. Both are equally righteous and holy and blameless before me. That's what justification means. And God hears Jesus' prayers, and he hears our prayers as well. We have access that is unlimited to and before him. It says also that we have the hope of God's glory. It says in verse 2 of chapter 5, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. What he's saying here is that we have confident expectation that one day we're going to participate in the glory of heaven. So not only do we have confident access to him, but listen, Paul said it this way. He says, to live is Christ, to die is what? Yeah. 
gain. What Paul is saying is that we can live this life with confidence knowing exactly where we're going. That one day we're going to participate in heaven's glory with God. We have the hope of God's glory. We exalt and hope in the glory of God. Isn't that amazing? So what that means is this. You're only a heartbeat away from heaven. You're right there on heaven's doorstep. Every day of your life, you live right there. Why? Because God has prepared a way. He's made a way for you and is ready for you the moment your days are done, this side of eternity. You have hope in God's glory. You see, this confidence is also a humble confidence. It's not based on my goodness or my ability to maintain it. That confidence is totally based on Christ, the object of my faith. Therefore, we can rejoice in the future, not because we're so good or we've been so good, but rather because Christ is perfect and he is our Savior. We have the hope of God's glory. So first of all, it changes our relationship with God. Second, it changes our response to life's tribulations. How many of you have troubles in your life right now? Any dry wells in your life? All of us have troubles. And I think one of the greatest misnomers of Christianity, one of the greatest disfavors we can do is tell somebody that when you come to Christ, life is going to be hunky-dory. It's going to be like a bowl of cherries without the pits. What they need to hear is, no, life is still going to be a bowl of cherries, but the pits are going to be there too. It doesn't mean life is going to suddenly change and become wonderful. We still have trials. We still have difficulties. We have tribulations. The difference is now that we're not alone going through them. And so it changes my response to life's trials and tribulations. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, The unsaved person is torn down by tribulations, but the believer is built up by tribulations. You see, the Bible says this, as we go through tribulations, we can rejoice. Why? Because we know something about them that others don't. Listen to what Paul says. We also exult in our tribulations, knowing, we know something about them, that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us, we know that God is not going to waste our pain. He's not going to waste our suffering. He allows it in our lives and he promises that all things happen for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Isn't it hard to believe that when you're going through those tribulations though? Isn't it true that sometimes those, those tribulations, those trials are so acute, they're so large that we can't see around them and see that God is with us as well? And yet Paul says we need to remember something. We, remember, we need to remember that we know something about these tribulations that God has shown us, that he never wastes our suffering, he never wastes our problems. Interesting, the, Greek, the English word for tribulation comes from the Latin word tribulum. Tribulum in Latin had to do with a large piece of wood like a, like a railroad tie that had, it was full of nails. And to be pulled behind an oxen, it would thresh the wheat. It would pull the, the seed away from the shaft, the wheat away from the shaft. And that's exactly what God does through our tribulations as he takes out the bad in our lives. He takes out the stuff that's not necessary there and is good for our lives. Why does God do that? 
Because God is not against us, but for us. You see, the fact that I'm justified means this. Because God has declared me righteous, and he is making me righteous, it means this, I no longer need to fear. That what is happening in my life today is because God is angry at me, because God is punishing me. That's not true. God allows those things in your life for your good, not your harm. He is not punishing you. He has allowed those difficulties. And we need to know is that God is not going to waste that pain. It is for our good. So Paul says that tribulation works for us, not against us. Why? Because we know this is how God works. Years ago, there was a lady that was an amazing lady. She was a quadriplegic. She had been bedridden for many years. All she could move was her neck and her head a bit. And she discovered along the way that she could hold a paintbrush with her teeth. And she painted amazing paintings. In fact, the hallway where she stayed was a bright glow of her paintings. Why? Because she was a person who was one of the most joyful people I'd ever met in my life. I remember being amazed as I met her because here's a lady who was a quadriplegic, had been bedridden for years, had not been able to get up, had not been able to live a regular life, was dependent on others for everything, and yet there was a deep, abiding joy that she had. There wasn't a person that came in contact with her that didn't walk away going, wow, this lady has joy. And it doesn't come from this world. It comes from God. It's amazing. Why is that? Because she knew something about this trial. She knew something about tribulations, that God was going to use it for her good. I'm going to ask you, what kind of trials are you going through right now? And how many of us are tempted to buy into the lie? There's nothing good in these trials. God doesn't even know, or maybe God is allowing it because he's trying to harm me. God says, I want you to know, if I am for you, who can be against you? I will never waste your trials. I am for your good. I'm not punishing you, but rather I'm allowing these things in your life to make you like my son. Imagine, if you will, imagine your life is like a, 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 a block of, of rock. And there is a, an artist. And he's going to chisel away at that rock. Because inside that rock, in the artist's mind, is a beautiful image that he wants to create. Just imagine God is the artist. And you're that block of rock. Sometimes we feel like a block of rock, don't we? But God is chipping away all the pieces that are not necessary. Not to make something that's not there, but to reveal something that's already there. To reveal the masterpiece that he wants to bring into your life. He does that through trials and tribulations. It changes our response to our troubles. It changes our relationship with others as well. He says in verse 5 of chapter 5 in Romans, he says, Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. God promises that he's going to change our relationship with others. Why? He says, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Meaning simply this. 
is that God brings about a whole new ability to love others in your heart that you didn't have before. Now, I have to be just candid with you. Can I just be honest with you? There are some people that I don't like. I don't like to be around them. And I can't say that I really just love them. Now, I'm just being honest with you. Is that all right? Can I do that? I know I'm the only one in the room like that. I know. So forgive me. But what's important about that is being honest. There are some people I go, like, I, I just, I'd rather just not. Thank you. Have a good day. But there are some people God's going to put in your life and you say, I know you don't love them. I know you don't have any feelings, but I'm going to give you that ability to love them. Because you see, I love all people and I sent my son to die on the cross for all people. And when I come to God and say, God, I'm just really struggling in this relationship. I don't really have any feelings of love for this person whatsoever. God says, oh, it's okay. I understand. You see, love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. It's choosing to love that person in a way that honors the Lord, to treat them in a way in which God would have you to treat them because of his love in your life. It's a choice. And when I make that choice, say, okay, God, I'm not going to give in to my feelings. I just want to trust you. Will you give me the ability to love that person? I begin to pray for that person. And my perspective, my relationship changes with that person in my heart. But we first have to be honest that we struggle with these things. So it changes my relationship with others. So justification, what does it mean? Well, something happens instantaneous, doesn't it? We're right with God immediately. It is something that is final. It is permanent. It is eternal. It will never, ever, ever change. It is something that is a gift from God. It is by faith. And it is something that gives us a whole new life. Justification. Just to kind of give you an idea of the significance of this word, when you look back through history, Romans has been the one book that has so significantly changed the lives of, of many, many believers, more than any other book perhaps in the entire New Testament. Let me take you to the year 1513. In the year 1513, there was a monk who at that time was lecturing on the book of Psalms as well as the book of Romans. Inside his life was deep inner turmoil. He struggled daily. He wanted to be accepted by God. He wanted to know God, but he struggled with his own sin. He struggled with his own torment. And he'd come across passages like Psalm 31, verse 1, where it says, In your righteousness, deliver me. And then he would come across Romans chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 17, where it says, The righteous will live by faith. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed that we live by faith to faith. And he was struggling with that because in his mind, the righteousness of God was God's condemnation, God's punishment for his sin. And he couldn't make sense of how can God's righteousness be good in a sense that it's going to benefit me. How does that work? He later on wrote these words. Night and day, I pondered, I struggled until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is the righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. 
Therefore, he says, I felt myself reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. It radically transformed his life. That monk was Martin Luther, who began the Great Reformation. But that Reformation first had to begin in his heart. Boy, I could tell you story after story after story. The year 1738, John Wesley, who was a failed missionary, a failed pastor, was in England. He'd returned home after a failed missions effort. And somebody invited him to a small Bible study. He didn't want to go. He was reluctant, but he decided to go. And as he was listening to this small Bible study, he heard uh, Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And he said something happened to him. As he heard those words, his heart began to change. And he began to understand that I need to trust Christ by faith alone, not by my efforts. He said, when that happened, he said, something began to change in my heart. And he says, I felt for the first time I was forgiven. I was free. Justification. It's a word that Paul uses a lot. And he wants us to understand because it will radically change your life if you understand what God means by it and you apply it in your life through faith.